0: hi everyone welcome to the modern house podcast with me matt gibbard today i'm pottering around in the garden at home i'm in the wildflower meadow that we planted this time last year and it really has come alive it's just the most amazing thing to see uh, what used to be a a, a simple paddock um, with a couple of grazing horses that belong to some other people in the village we live in um, is now just completely alive with flowers of all sorts of different colors and we've got bees buzzing around and, and grasshoppers um and and the hares, the number of hares we have is quite amazing. They use it like a sort of glorified running track for running around. Um, and now we have some, some barn owls that have taken up residence on the fringes of it as well. Um, we took advice from a brilliant man called Charles Flower, believe it or not, um, who's one of the leading experts in wildflower meadows and he told us exactly what mix of seeds to use and and what the land was like etc i'm sure many of you have read the book wilding by isabella tree but if you haven't do have a read of it it's really interesting and it's all about letting nature take its course and really you know i suppose dedicating less of our land to aggressive farming methods and trying to allow some more space in the countryside for nature to do its thing so we've done our very small bit contribute to that and obviously we're lucky enough to have the space to be able to do it but it it really is incredibly beautiful and really lovely thing to have moving on to today's podcast um, i'm really pleased to welcome penny martin who's the editor-in-chief of the gentlewoman magazine who i interviewed on zoom a couple of weeks ago and i just couldn't have enjoyed it more really it's one of my absolutely favorite episodes um mainly because Penny's a real Esthete I mean she chose Some really interesting Buildings to talk about But what, what came across I think more than Anything is just her, her sheer Passion for Design and Architecture And I have to Confess up front She did get a bit Teary at one point Which was just Amazing And, and, and it, was, it was Sort of quite Emotional around Actually um, So I, I, I Massively enjoyed it I really hope you Enjoy listening to um, Let us know what You think as always And see you next time Hi, Penny. Hi. Um, Just to set the scene a bit, where, where are you? Where, where are you joining us from?
1: I'm at home. I'm in the East Nook of Fife, which uh, means nook. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, up, it's quite near St Andrews. It's a little suite of um, fishing villages.
0: Can you hear seagulls and other sea-like activity in the background? Yes,
1: I'm afraid so. Any minute the birds that are nesting underneath my window are going to start up. Uh, okay. And this It's a bit stormy today, so we might not hear the seagulls, but yeah.
0: OK, OK. Can you see the weather coming in from there, or what do you see?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm 20 metres from the water. My garden wall is the seawall. Hmm. It's quite stormy at the moment, and when the water comes over it, it cracks up onto this third-floor window. I mean, it's oh, wow. really quite extreme. Uh, um, so it's it obviously like, you know, like staring out into the sea, it's quite meditative and yeah. it's made me, um, I just noticed as soon as I lived here full time during the lockdown that I just was capable of a great deal harder work. Not that that's yeah. necessarily been a good thing, but I just think a sea view has made me really focused and, um, and productive, but in a way it can, the danger is maybe over, overwork in a weird way.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? Well, I'm at home in the South Downs, and our, our lovely chap Les, who comes to mow the lawn, is here this morning, so you may also hear that, that in the background <laughs> at my end. Um, I would love to start, as I often do, um, just by taking you back to your childhood and your childhood home. Did, mm. you, did you grow up near where you are now?
1: Yeah, I grew up in St. Andrews from the age of three, but prior to that, I was in Kelvindale in Glasgow ah. um, but from three, I was in the suburbs in St Andrews in a place called, well, if you're grand, it was called Canongate Estate, uh, and it's actually known as Bog Ward, which sounds a bit less glamorous. Um, so yeah, in a university town. I mean, my actual upbringing in that house was quite peculiar, I think, by the standards of the street. My dad was a musician, and I just can remember Yacht Rock blaring from our windows and really angering the neighbours. Um, And my mum was, she she looked after us until she went back, I don't know, to to work as an art teacher, probably when I was about eight or something like that. But it was all sort of little street parties and we kept hens. I mean, it was quite um, the good life in that it was like a little suburban street, but there was all sorts of kind of things that angered angered the locals. Um, So (laughs) no, my interest in sort of Uh, magazines and things like that probably came from the music press. I used to get sounds in Melody Maker and NME from about 16. And then it wasn't really till I went to university in Glasgow that I became interested in fashion at all. And there wasn't really any fashion in in St Andrews. Uh, There was, you know, a sort of Sloaney looking fashion that we didn't want to replicate as schoolgirls and we just wore loads of thrift and long coats and it was more about testing the boundaries of what we could get away with as prefects than it was in trying to make some kind of branded statement I didn't know anything about branded fashion and my mum didn't get those kinds of magazines either
0: So was it lots of kind of golf chic as well, you know the sort of Payne Stewart kind of long socks, argyle socks thing
1: Yes, which of course we thought was terribly ugly and now it just looks like Prada
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah Okay, so you, you, so from St. Andrews, what happened then? Did you head to London or?
1: No, no, I, I did my first degree in Glasgow, yeah, and then I worked. Uh, I did a a post one year postgraduate in Manchester Art History Department, and that was in uh, Museum and Art Gallery Studies, and then came down to London to the Royal College of Art uh, to do to study PhD about magazines, but in the History of Design Department.
0: So you. You're at the RCA and, and what you were you sort of immersing yourself in magazines then?
1: I had a collection of British Vogue that stretched back to the sixties and I wanted to do a thesis on Thatcher, Thatcherism and the media, which is what I was doing. Okay. And it was around about the eighties. So it was kind of when Eddie Shah was launching the Today oh, newspaper yes. and the sort of conversion to desktop publishing and what happened to the media as a result of advertising theory coming over from America via Anna Wintour and all sorts of but I should say let's not go too deeply into that because I never finished that PhD I ended up working huh. for Nick Knight and Peter Saville
0: for people that don't know Nick and Peter I mean Nick, Nick Knight obviously um, a very well-known fashion photographer but just tell us a little bit about them
1: yeah uh, Nick Knight was and still is one of the UK's foremost photographers biggest one of the biggest fashion photographers in the world, and uh, at that time was working for Christian Dior as his main client, had a very important relationship with Alexander McQueen and was one of his kind of image makers and uh, historically had worked for uh, Yoji Yamamoto in the 80s, making really important images. But you know, didn't just work in fashion at that time, um, worked in the music industry and had very important relationships with people like Bjork etc. So it was an enormously uh, vibrant and ambitious image making climate in that studio. Also worked with um, Peter Saville, who was one of Nick's long-standing collaborators, the art director and founder of, uh, co-founder of Factory Records. He um, uh, was still working with a lot of music clients, Suede and um, Pulp. I think Jarvis Cocker was one of his main clients at the, at the first time when I started working. But you know, incredibly ambitious and um, expert and sort of elite image making climate in there and quite um, eye opening. Very strong personalities.
0: Tell us about how that happened why, why, how did you end up working with Nick Knight?
1: Out of the blue um, during a really horrible period of time, my brother had just died and I took some time off the RCA and was sort of like a woman in a dressing gown and I remember picking up the phone to Nick and Nick, I'd been doing loads of oral history research and I, I just was used to hearing Nick's voice. So Nick Phone me at home saying hello this is Nick Knight and instead of saying oh thank you I'm very interested to receive your call I said I know <laughs> so at that point I think he probably should have put the phone down thinking what a peculiar woman um but in fact invited me in and at that point he was working with Dior and they were working on a big exhibition um, that they were shooting images for with John Galliano and it was a very extravagant shoot where there was a strong man and a snake charmer sitting in the green room and I was invited in. I remember wearing like really unfashiony, I suppose what I thought was like a smart outfit, <laughs> which I remember with these kind of Joseph trousers and these helmet line shoes, but it was all super wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, And just... And Nick, not really knowing how to conduct an interview, because he hadn't really had to work in a workplace, so like one of the first questions he asked me was, are you married? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd come out of the civil service thinking, you're not allowed to ask that question. Um, So it was like a kind of mismatch of expectations, but maybe that was what was required to get this thing off the ground. In a way, I think probably it was my role to ask questions and perhaps give voice to the sort of unmentionable or they unaskable because there's a lot of things that happen in fashion and nobody really queries unless somebody says why is that and actually sometimes it, you need to be quite courageous in a room full of fairly elite people to ask that question <laughs> yeah. and that was my job
0: okay okay so for those who who, who you know from outside the fashion industry what, what 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 was show studio why was it important at that time
1: well at that time it was perhaps one of two existing fashion uh, websites. But because fashion's a late adopter in a way, a weird way, when budgets are finally apportioned to projects, it's usually when the big brands are coming on board. And they, though they need to seem innovative, they're rarely people that take on a new technology first. That's so, you know, it's much smaller brands that were experimenting with motion image and, and uh, interactivity at that point. It wasn't the Chanel's or even the Prada's. So, um... You know, there were these two guys who had great Rolodexes and a lot of trust getting us to kind of phone people up and and collaborate with them. And naturally the early projects were with people like Bjork and and so forth because they already had fantastic online followings and they were already, you know, established as experimental and kind of visionary people that would work with quite intrepid image makers and creators, but not fashion. So, in a way, we were like a kind of R&D um, laboratory, which had a live programme. Yeah. We were available online, and you could see us on webcam at all time. And the whole idea was about process. Do you remember process 20 mm. years ago? I think it was into process. Well, um, we made the virtue of that and uh, made ourselves kind of very uh, visible, making all this fashion media. It was really about how, learning how to programme online, in public, um, which, if I read that as a job description now, I'd be terrified. I don't know how I taught myself to do it, but I did. What
0: what, what made you the right choice for that role? I mean, it it does seem a bit left field, right, if you think about well, it? Well, I
1: wasn't. I wasn't the right choice, of course. Okay. I'm sure there were many people that were much more qualified. <laughs> but in a way, it also needed a person to bring a group of techs together who, many of whom hadn't really had jobs before. You know, if you try and think of the people that were advanced and are able to make that kind of media at that time, they were bedroom boys, you know, that made mouse toys. And um, they needed this kind of rather nannyish character that could pull a group of people together, figure out a rationale, create a brief, bring the team with them. So uh, Nick took a punt. But I will say this for Nick, he's extremely good at seeing the capacity in people. Mm. Um, I remember Martine Sitbon, the designer, saying quite early when I first met her, saying Nick has bird's eyes, but he, 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 uh, that's not just in terms of image making. I just think he can see in people what what he can get them
0: to do. Yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? What sort of atmosphere was it? like? Did you feel like you were really kind of, you know, starting something? Did it feel feel quite anarchic?
1: No, it was like walking into a kind of morgue of sort of eight, (laughs) probably fewer than that, like four guys with their headphones on that weren't talking to each other, (laughs) making things on a desktop. And in those days, do you remember, everybody was into milk thistle. Everybody was terrified of their computers and believed that they were going to destroy their livers. So I just remember all these bottles of milk thistle next to these desktops in this silent atmosphere. So in a way, maybe it was for me to bring some noise into the room. We were trying to do so many things. You know, Nick would describe it as being the first in the sweetie shop. He was just desperate to have used every bit of technology. All the stuff would kind of roll in and we'd get a bit of kit and we'd be pouring over this phone that's got a camera on it. Mm. You know, what are going to do with that? We'd just be like pouring over it, like four of us looking at it in the box like it was pornography. Like, oh my God, yeah. could that be... Could that be a device for broadcasting? Mm. Will we make a photo diary with that? You know, it, it was very, um, it was quite innocent, I suppose.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was exactly, if I think about it, that was exactly the time that I, so I graduated from university, I think in 2000 or something. And yeah, about around the time you, you started at Show Studio, I had my first job at the World of Interiors, um not you too know, shabby. That's a good start Well well, yeah, well it well, it was fetching toast and things like that for six months. But it was um if I look at it actually as an environment, it was it's amazing, really. I mean Min Hogg had just left and she she would chain smoke in the office. You know, that's that's just mm. that was that was what happened. But it was it was just very um analogue. No one had a mobile phone at all. And they didn't watch T V either. And I, I remember one day, um, Jessica Haynes, who was the supremely talented creative director there, she piped up in the office, who is this man Anton Deck, I keep hearing about? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, She didn't watch Biker Grove. <laughs> I know. Yeah, clearly she missed out on Biker Grove. Obviously she meant Anton Deck. Um, but that was kind of what it was like. And, and I remember when my first business card arrived, it was like, you know, you're in yellow lettering on a kind of, brown background and it, this you know this wasn't really a world i understood at all um but no, you still went to the library you
1: know <laughs> there was t- and there was time built into that yeah activity which meant there was thinking done in yeah. between the cracks it, it just produced a different product i'm not like, going to say one's better than the other because it's yeah. a bit of a boring point but um yeah the thinking time was still around at that point so
0: in 2010 I think, The Gentlewoman launched. So tell me about your first issue. Where where do you start?
1: At that time, it was quite easy to distinguish ourselves from what was around because that was the zenith of the weekly and Grazia was the big story. And it was all about sort of very vivid, floral cover lines and, you know, a sort of relentless uh, visualisation of women and not really much about what they said, etc. So to present the opposite of that was kind of the brief and and that chimed with something that was about to happen that probably we couldn't have predicted which was the kind of pop feminist moment and and to feel like we were I guess contributing to this redefinition of what women in the media could be um so we were lucky in lots of ways
0: so if if someone listening hasn't ever picked up a copy of the gentlewoman what's what's the main thing that you'd say it sort of stands for what why would they read it
1: I think it's substantial. Mm. It treats women seriously, but doesn't make them seem serious. I think there's just a lot of visual pleasure, Mm. but also the sound of what people say and the kind of tone of how women relate to each other. Um, And, you you know, there's also a sort of respect and love of women's publishing before uh, things changed in the, I guess, the 90s and noughties. Whereas ambitious for the writing as we are for the imagery and when you think about most women's publications or or consumer uh, periodicals it's either one or the other isn't it they're either really good to read or they're really good to look at but it's actually quite difficult to
0: achieve both. It's it's also definitely a deliberate antidote isn't it to most women's magazines and the whole sort of airbrushed fantasy thing right?
1: Yeah there's a respect for the real Mm -hmm. um, and the sort of soft glamour not this sort of bogus celebrity mm. women, really. Um, mm. Though I'm not, you know, I'm interested in celebrity, but I just, you know, I think we perhaps have a slightly different uh, tone. Why, how would you describe it?
0: Well, I was thinking about this and I think it's quite modernist in a way. You, you may disagree with this, but I think that sort of, you know, that, that modernist principle of a truth to materials, I think is what comes through in the magazine. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful object but it's also, it has gravitas to it and it, and it's about showing people the reality of people. And, you know, you said you're interested in celebrity and and we all are, but I think it's quite interesting that you've chosen to put Angela Lansbury on the cover and you've interviewed Judy Murray and you've interviewed, you know, Yoko Ono and Janet Street Porter and women who are perhaps you know, quite controversial in a way. And and maybe you tried to kind of change their narrative and and tell their story differently. And I I think that's great.
1: Well, that's great. And when it succeeds, it is that, yeah.
0: Excellent, Penny. Let's move on to your um, three choices of spaces to discuss. Um, They're really good ones and they're they're all very different and they're all, they're all personal, which is really good. So your first one is Kelly Castle um, in your native Scotland, which is now owned by the National Trust. Of which I'm a trustee. Are you? Okay. So tell us why you've chosen this one.
1: Well, Kelly's where I got married uh, in 2006. Um, It's an arts and crafts uh, version of a kind of 14th century building um, done up by this family, the Lorimers. I was a little bit nervous, I'll be honest, about getting my crowd up from London as well as my family at the time, because one of the stipulations of getting married in there was the Lorimer family had said that you had to <laughs> have a religious ceremony, and you know I knew it would be a very mixed crowd, and you know be a lot of fashion people and be a lot of gay people there, and I wasn't sure that I wanted a sort of a, a, a ceremony that was too sort of fire and brimstone. You know, we're on the east coast of Scotland up here, and. Um, I remember my husband was very friendly with the professor of philosophy at um, Leeds University who coincidentally had been one of my tutors at Glasgow and we said to him, look, we'd love you to do a reading um, but be aware that it's got to be some kind of spiritual ceremony um, but we're trying to get the tone right. And he said, well, he said, do you want me to tell you what I'm going to read? And we were like, no, no, why don't you just surprise us? And we kind of left it in his hands. (laughs) And on the day he did... um, Aristophanes' speech from Plato's Symposium, the idea, if if I remember it correctly, is that there's not two sexes, there's three sexes. So there's the children of the sun, which is men. There's the children of the earth, which I think is women. And then there's these other creatures that have components of both, which are the children of the moon. And Zeus cuts them in half, and they spend their whole lives looking for each other and longing for each other. And finally, when they find their other half, that's the origin of love. (laughs) And I can remember standing in that room um, after this woman had, this delightful woman had played a rather out of tune version of Amazing Grace. (laughs) Me standing with my family and this charming um, vicar that had been sort of sanctioned by Kelly Castle. And then John Divers, Professor John Divers, reading about the, the children of the sun and the moon and the earth, and everybody looking slightly dumbfounded. So I'm not quite sure if that's what the Lorimers had in mind when they said that we had to have a spiritually religious ceremony in Kelly Castle, but um, the bride
0: was very satisfied. That's very right, good. Well, I, th- I think it's important that weddings are a little bit absurd myself. <laughs> my, my, my my own wedding, um, there were only seven of us. We got married um, in North London. But um, it was just quite funny because it was, you know, we basically kind of made it up ourselves. So we got this ghetto blaster in, you know, we chose a bit of music that we were going to have that Faye was going to walk down the aisle to. <laughs> I say aisle, it was, you know, sort of three yards. So she, as she came around the corner, my brother got the signal to press play on this thing. So he presses play. And then she was, at the, she was at the front within about three bars. So, so we, we never got to listen to it at all. So at the end, everyone kind of said, can we listen to the music now? So we sort of did that. And I tried to make a speech and kind of failed. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's important that you send yourself up a little bit at a wedding. But what? what just t- tell us about your day. Like, did you enjoy it? Or was it, were you racked with nerves? I mean, how many people were there?
1: I think there were 60. Um, I mean, this is what, 2006, is that 15 years ago? Um, I, and uh, probably more at night. There was a ceilidh. We came back into Anstruther at the town hall and there was a ceilidh. Uh, a couple of people had to go home from uh, dancing injuries. Did they?
0: That's the, <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> the
1: badge of a, a good uh, Scottish wedding, it, surely. It is, isn't it? It was amazing, though... I do always think that a wedding depends what age you are, doesn't it? You know, I, I knew it didn't... I used to work in a, a wedding dress shop in St Andrews, actually, when I was, like, 13. I used to carry the headdresses and the veils. Um, so I, I actually had a lot of opinions on on, on weddings, and I knew I didn't want to be one of those bridal couples that felt like they were being shepherded around by their parents and it was all about who Mm. their parents were inviting to their wedding and that seemed to happen to people when they got married in their teens and their early 20s and then your 30s it's all about for the first time in your life all factions of your life coming together in a way that you never really planned you know you didn't expect your parents to meet your colleagues to meet your friends all in one place sort of thing yeah yeah and then I think you know when people get I mean I'm, I'm going to be 50 this uh, summer, I think when people get married at this age, is much, much more about their own tastes and less about mm. kind of expectations. So I'm sure, you know, you could have a wedding for every decade of your, of your life and they'd all be different, wouldn't they? That's a
0: good idea, yeah. What, <laughs> what what did you wear then in the end?
1: Well, that was the thing. It was always, I felt a huge amount of kind of fashion expectation about, you yeah. know, I was working for Nick Knight at the time and it was like, are you going to wear McQueen? Are you going to wear a uh, Galliano? I was like, no, I don't want anybody... I don't want my auntie not to understand what I wore, you know. It, so in a way I just bought, a, a, a I, I was in like a Vera Wang that I got. It was the first dress I tried on in um, uh, Liberties and I just felt like myself in it. I thought, okay, I'll have this. So in a way it was the opposite of what you'd think kind of a, a bride's experience would be where you're kind of seeking out the kind of definitive of the time fashion statement. It was, it was anything but that.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> what 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 do you what do you tend to wear you know just in your daily life like, I mean most people in fashion seem to just wear kind of jeans 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 and a black jumper but what about you yeah
1: yeah pretty much I mean yeah, yeah. the navy lady it's yeah. um, cashmere jumpers and kind of peg leg trousers and white trainers yeah you know is the is the uniform mm. yeah and in a way almost feel a little bit self conscious wearing uh current fashion mm. um i feel you know i'm not a model mm. look, i we don't look anything like a model and you do i don't want to really make that some people get a bit confused over that at fashion week etc and that you know that's fine but no i I'd, I'd just rather wear a quality uniform yeah i feel much more confident that
0: way than the yeah. other way around that's interesting isn't it yeah so so getting back to your to your wedding um it's got quite a history, hasn't it, the castle? I was reading about this because the 5th Earl of Kelly um, was a supporter of Bonnie Prince Charlie during the Jacobite Rebellion and he, he, he hid inside a beech tree in the garden for the whole summer. Yeah, yeah in 1746. He, he found this be- <laughs> beech tree and he hid inside it. and he got his For but- the whole summer? The whole summer he got his butler to secretly bring him food, scuttle across the garden to bring him food every day. <laughs> I don't
1: think it's still there.
0: <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's also meant to be haunted, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I read that also.
0: OK, we haven't seen the evidence of it.
1: I, no, I couldn't feel any trace of that. All
0: right, well, let's move on to your second one, um, which is the Spar Green Estate in Clerkenwell in London, which was designed, of course, by the modernist architect Berthold Lebetkin in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and that was finally built in 1949. <clears throat> um, the Survey of London describes it as heroic um, and Pevsner called it the most innovative public housing of its time. So um, quite a lot of accolades. What, what, what's so good about it, do you think?
1: I wanted to live there as soon as I visited it. We went on a school trip when I was at the Royal College um, and I was living in <laughs> Whitechapel at the time and it was, it was a pretty awful time. And I just wrote and I wrote and I took any cheap commission going in order to save up enough money to get myself out of that house. <laughs> and finally my husband saw on the market a uh, near complete interior, it had everything in it. Had had um, the granite fireplace, it had all the brass fixings, It, you know, but it was filthy, absolutely filthy. And I remember with the estate agent taking us around being quite apologetic for the state of it, but I could see mm. underneath, you know, the grime of, on the walls and all the posters and everything that everything was in this building. And it was just an unbelievable joy living there. It Just the proportions were amazing. And the view were so high up Mm. uh, between John Street and Rosebury Avenue. Mm. And um, it was a perfect... It had been a perfect social model. There were still lots of social housing uh, tenants and some of the original tenants in our stairwell. But actually, it was kind of a sad time for us because it was the time when... um, Labour had New Labour had signed up to the 2010 Best Home Standards and they were getting uh, refurbished. The, it was a two-star listed building and uh, needed very, very expensive works. So we had um, great crittle windows that were perfectly fine that were replaced with ones that le- that cost us 42,000 and it was just like a kind of we're hostage to fortune about what was going to happen. So it was a very, very pleasurable three or four years and it was my absolute perfect house and I loved it.
0: As, I mean, spatially, um, it owes a lot to Ove Arup, doesn't it? Who was the engineer there who built the, the, the concrete frame, and of course went on to work on the Sydney Opera House. But um, the, the idea of his concrete box frame, also known as the egg crate frame, uh, was was essentially that you know, like all concrete structures, it enables much cleaner lines and it enables much more open spaces. What, what what kind of space? Just describe the space in there for us. Did it feel Did it feel greater than the sum of its parts in a way?
1: Um, it drew you into the main dining room in a kind of, like in a trance, just the way the light was controlled, um, the way the bedrooms worked just felt very sort of intuitive to the human body. I mean, I'd been brought up in a Victorian, convert- well, not been brought up, sorry, but whilst being a student in all sorts of kind of bodged buildings, and this was one of the first ones where it was, you know, um purpose built and had really thought about the size of a human body. Um I think yeah. I'd read I didn't know about the egg crate structure, but I I'd mm. read a lot about the fact that apparently um Labetkin had been interested in kilim rugs and the external sort of facade the elevation had the pattern of a Kalim or something. Not like you sort of get it from outside, but I didn't know that about the
0: I didn't know that's interesting. But, but, yeah. Is it is it they're beautiful from the outside, aren't they? They're just beautiful buildings. Yeah.
1: Yeah, amazing. They're magical. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the the kitchen was small, but you'll know you, you have heard about all the kind of the pull-out table and the hatch that had the glass display thing above it that could be open from both sides and things. And it was a little bit like the size of your fingers. You know, it was like the things you'd poke your fingers in to pull things out. It was about like the same proportions as my hands. You know, it, it just felt um, very... Um, it was just very charming and they had like brass fixings on all the windows and the doors and things. And did he not have to fight some battle about the kind of cost of those saying that nothing's too good for ordinary people? Nothing's
0: too good for ordinary people is just such a great quote that he made. And I think that, you know, what's very clear is that this council housing is is kind of, as you say, it's just so in tune with the human body and um, it's so thoughtfully designed. I mean, it seems to me that contemporary house builders could learn a lot from this sort of era of design because it I just feel like we don't get it right anymore what, what, what do you think?
1: Oh well sure I mean the principles that you know I'm very behind I mean there were, you can see why they probably argued against them laterally you know there was communal heating so there was all mm. sorts of issues there you know if the when things started to sort of corrode etc the investment necessary was enormous and then of course that was behind what ended up happening as we all had to kind of flee escalating costs and then I laterally heard that they you know once they'd changed the exterior of the building they were onto the bathrooms and going to have to cut through the new kitchens or whatever it was mm. but I just think you know th- those places cost a lot to uh, the upkeeps is 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 mm. substantial
0: and we talked about the connections nature where you are obviously you know in a you know slightly more bucolic <laughs> location than 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 central London but you know, every flat there has its own balcony, and there's these roof terraces, and the higher ones feel quite up in the trees, don't they? Did you, did you feel surprisingly connected to the outside world when you're in there?
1: I was aware of its connection, but the um, roof terraces were actually closed at the time when you could you could you could kick your way through the fire door and get up there, but officially yeah. you weren't meant to be up there. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm I'm not myself. I'm not pro balcony. I've lived in a couple of places with balconies and I know that you don't really use them. Um, Interesting. So you always think you will, but you don't, Um, and I'd rather do what I'm meant to be doing on a a balcony in a good park myself. Um, I then lived in Ealing in a Victorian um, terrace uh, for 10 years after 2007 um, and saw the development, for instance, of kind of luxury flats in uh, Ealing. Mm -hmm broadway and that whole dickens yard and it was always kind of a kind of um sea of balconies all looking out onto each other and i just thought that's the sort of apotheosis of what i hate in those kinds of buildings and yeah so i i think that you've got to be careful not to get seduced by a balcony because you'll never use it
0: okay so you think if someone's looking for their first flat they should go for a flat near a park rather than a flat with a balcony for sure yeah that's interesting all they'll
1: end up doing is storing a bike or (laughs) you know getting into trouble with authorities about drying their washing out there or something it it never is the kind of luxury lifestyle um (laughs) instagram magnet that you're imagining
0: (laughs) yeah uh, fair enough um have you been to any of the other lebetkin blocks in london yes i've been to
1: bevan court
0: yeah have you been been
1: to high point I have been in the grounds of High Point, but never in that penthouse flat that they always photograph with the pointy-skin rug. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a that's, a that's a great flat. Well, I used to live pretty much next door to High Point. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, no, it's just a yeah, fantastic architect and a, and a great legacy, I think. Um, but I think it's a, that's an inspired choice. So thank you for for sharing that one with us. And then we'll move on finally to your third one, which is... Well, presumably the Mackintosh building at Glasgow School of Art rather than the School of Art as a whole, um, yeah. which was designed by Charles Rennie Mackintosh uh, and built between 1896 and 1909. Um, yeah. Tragically, of course, damaged by fire in 2014 and then sort of pretty much destroyed by a second fire in 2018. Used to be a tour guide there, didn't you? I did, yeah. Which is kind um, of exciting. So, I, <laughs> I, not having been there myself, and obviously with this now sort of relic of what, what it once was existing, I thought it could be quite interesting if you could just very loosely give us a, a bit of a tour of it.
1: Sure. Well, the relevance to our story here is that it kind of connects the two, doesn't it? In that it's uh, arts and crafts into international style and it's built in two halves and there's a period of time where he can't get the money together to finish the second half so his style has moved on so the tour almost tells you the story of its creation and that you get swept up these amazing steps that just takes you up into the light into this arts and crafts ceiling uh, that's got all these kind of letharby style arts and crafts motifs kind of cut into it and that was the kind of exhibition area so to the east of that you walk along parallel to the painting studios and up these big stone stairs. Along the back of the building was this thing called the Hen Run that connected the two halves of the building and had these loggias in it and you could on one side of it look out over the town and you'd see all the sort of architectural history that preceded it sort of Greek Thompson and all those different architects. It was an amazing view and then you'd walk along and you go back down this sort of I think in, was it two 1906 to 1909 or something like that was when he finally completed the second half and that's by the time he's been hanging out with all the sort of international style guys in <laughs> Austria and all that stuff mm. and you get the famous library with all its um, very lavish m- much more lavish than the kind of austerity and the sort of baronial style in the eastern half, down the west it's all stained glass and all the colour schemes and all the sort of um, motifs and also there's this um, boardroom which has got the kind of white painted sort of skin um, of, on the panelling and uh, you know that gave them that nickname the spook school where everything was all well, the wood was painted in white and that's where the furniture collection was kept etc so it felt like a kind of journey through, literally a journey through time and it was very easy to explain to your tour um, what the development of his style um, was because it was so evident in the passage through the building in that route
0: yeah that's fascinating isn't it how did you get a job as a tour guide there
1: I I don't know. I I, I think somebody had told us that there was some going. I was in my second year at Glasgow doing art history. But I was only a tour guide there for two years, two or three years. But I really loved it. It
0: Did you? great.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, then I went on to work for Glasgow Museums later on. And, you know, Glaswegian people are really um, proud of, you know, they were taken by the schools to all those museums. And uh, I don't know, they, they seem to have been told that they owned The collections, well, they did. And then in the time when I studied museum studies, Julian Spalding was the head of the museum service, controversial figure, but you know really believed in this program of getting kind of dockers and glaziers redeployed from other parts of the council into the museums and learning about the collections. So not only did you have people that worked for the museums that you know were real Glaswegian people, but the schools were all coming and they felt a sort of sense of ownership and. I remember doing a beat when I worked at Glasgow Museums at Kelvin Grove, and dealing with a party of people that were absolutely incensed that the Salvador Dali, uh, Christ of Saint John and the Cross painting was not in its rightful place at the end of that corridor in Kelvin Grove where they expected to see it. You know, Glaswegians you know, believed they owned those paintings mm. and they, you know, they, they felt that they had a right to say where they should be and whether they're on display and, and there was a lot of dialogue and, and people really knew about the collections and I think that is true of, of Glaswegians and Scottish people in general, that they kind of feel a sense of ownership of the culture.
0: And do they feel a sense of ownership over Macintosh himself? I mean, to, to the uninitiated, what, what would you say was his great legacy?
1: Well, it was the school, wasn't it? Yeah. It um, uh, was a, a peerless piece of architecture, but, you know, round about the time of the Year of Culture uh, in 1919 in Glasgow, um, and the kind of, you know, people call it mockintosh, this sort of over-marketing of all the motifs and the pieces of his iconography um, meant that, you know, it's on brooches and on tea towels and, you know, it really they really exploited it for good and for bad, but people understand that, um language and they, they they speak it and they know a lot about it I think that's amazing
0: it's interesting that isn't it yes it's sort of um it's sort of Macintosh and then Kath Kidston in in in, <laughs> in, in all the gift shops in a way isn't it
1: <laughs> but it isn't pastiche you know it's a real thing
0: yeah what do you think as a building do you do you think that it was inspiring to the students that went through it do you, do you think that architecture inspires people in that way when they occupy and learn in a space like that
1: well, I know that it did. You know, my mum went to Glasgow Art School and I knew about it as a child and we had stolen cutlery from the canteen uh, in our house and I'd hear <laughs> stories. My dad was a musician and he played the Students' Union when she graduated and it was through the sort of... Um, <laughs> the legends of our, our our, our you know, my, my, my home life and I knew lots of painters that were at Glasgow and I now know artists that were part of it and you know they they talk about the the spaces and having been part of those studios and it's not you know when you hear other students talking about it's it's about the cult of personality and often about the tutors etc but people will tell you stories about the fact that they smoked in the studios i mean god i'm sure they don't really enjoy telling that story now (laughs) considering what happened but or just you know the kind of exhibitions that they put on in a Macintosh space, or hanging out in the Henron. and and yeah no I think people really felt proud of that building, and mm-hmm. that was shown when the fire actually happened. You must have seen the footage of mm-hmm. a, 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 you know ordinary Glaswegian people standing out there, um and watching the firemen and clapping the firemen when they 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 um, uh, left the building finally. But you know people, it was like a it was like a. An, an atrocity, you know, like a, a, a natural disaster or something like that, far happened to the local people.
0: How did you feel when you saw it?
1: I oh, know we were. Well, I don't expect to tear up, but it's terrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If it were down to you. What, 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 what would you do with it? I mean, the, the decision seems to be made to faithfully reproduce it, right? Is that what, is that, do you think that's the best thing?
1: Well, that was the plan in the, after the first fire in 2014, wasn't it? And they mm. got quite far down the line. And I think that's one of the stories that a lot of things were in um, storage that had been replicated. So there were replicas. But then there was a lot of people also arguing that they should just start again. Uh, and I suppose as a modernist, if that's what you called me, um, I should believe that it should be able to happen somewhere else. And, you know, that's truly what Macintosh believed too, rather than turning it into a sort of visitor centre or a museum or some sort of arts arts um, experience. But of course, I can understand why the various Macintosh uh, societies and things like that want to um, preserve whatever element of it because it was magic but you know the spirit should go somewhere else shouldn't it mm. and put faith in new generation of people to do exactly what he did but find find a, find a new macintosh that's the task
0: yeah 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 so you 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 think that the reconstruction will inevitably feel a bit like a theme park in a way or yeah it's a museum I, well museum I, piece. I don't know
1: i don't know the will but it
0: could in in a way given given that he was so forward thinking and it was such a magical building it's sort of a shame isn't it that we can't try to create our own version of that for our day
1: yeah um one every generation surely would like to think that it could um mm. but it, and it's a great part of the game to play um about who should who should do it but you know what a task
0: yeah well i think it's um yeah it's it's um you know i'm i'm sorry sorry to get you upset about it but I, think, <laughs> I didn't expect to sorry i know i know but i I think it's it it just shows you what a what a magical special thing it was and i you know personally i'm really sad that i didn't get to go up there and see it um
1: you might have had me as your tour guide i know yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: With all the misinformation and fake facts <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for being our tour guide today, Penny. It's been really, (laughs) really good to hear all of that. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening as always. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out about upcoming episodes, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can see photographs and a bit more information about the buildings we talked about today on our website, themodernhouse.com. This episode was produced by Kate Taylor of Feast Collective and mixed by Andy Taylor.